Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Gank, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Apparently, this is the second day of spring, but when I look out my window, I see lots of snow, so I'm not really believing it. Hopefully, it is sunny and warm where you are. And if you're seniors, hopefully you're beginning to receive lots of good news from the colleges where you applied. However, some of you will be receiving denies or wait lists. For my second segment today, I will be discussing what to do if you're offered a place on the wait list at a college. My guest will be Kara Courtois, longtime educational consultant here at College Coach and veteran of the Barnard Admission Office. She's been through many wait list cycles, so she has some great advice for you. For my third segment, I'll be talking with Elise Krantz, also a longtime educational consultant here at College Coach, who formerly worked at Barnard and Bennington College in Vermont. She and I will be discussing the National Association of College Admission Counselors, or NACAC's, report on the state of affairs in college admissions. NACAC is the preeminent professional association governing all things admissions, so this should be an interesting discussion. But first, I'll be talking with Tara Piantanita Kelly, former senior financial aid officer at Rochester Institute of Technology, Menlo College in California, and many others, and a current college finance consultant here at College Coach. She'll be discussing the very important question of how much is too much to borrow to pay for your college education. Welcome, Tara. Hi, Sally. Thank you. Oh, listen, thanks so much for coming on. This is probably, I think this is a huge question for a lot of people. So, um, and, and why don't you start by going into why this is such an important question for students and parents to ask themselves before they start borrowing? Oh, well, sure. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, the main goals in getting a college education is, you know, to set the student up for success, right? But borrowing too much is going to have the exact opposite effect, uh, you know, that, that you're trying to, to achieve. So, um, you know, I've worked with college students and their families for 25 years, and I have seen students who leave school with so much debt that they can't afford to have the lifestyle that they thought their degree was going to give them. You know, they can't move out of their parents' house. Um, they have to postpone things like buying a house or even a car. They have to postpone getting married sometimes or even starting a family because they just can't afford it. So their student loan payments are just too high. And, the, you know, I've also seen parents that, you know, borrow for multiple children and then, you know, they're, just, they're not even able to retire when they want to because they have borrowed too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually know someone in that exact situation. So, um, mm-hmm. so what, yeah, so what is the magical number when it comes to how much to borrow? Oh, okay. That is a great question. And unfortunately, it, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so, you know, like it depends. It's different for students than for parents. So, you know, if we start with the students, um, they'll want to ask themselves a few questions to decide on the right amount for them and, uh, and to make sure that they don't borrow above that. So the, the first question they can ask themselves is, okay, what kind of loans, you know, will I borrow? Am I just going to borrow on the federal direct loan program? Um, because those have annual and aggregate 
aggregate limits that they can't go beyond. So if they need to borrow more, they'll have to say, okay, you know, if I need to borrow on a private loan program, uh, you know, do I have a cosigner that's willing to, to cosign for me? Because it'll require one. Um, another thing they'll want to ask themselves is, you know, what degree am I getting? Because, I mean, it, it just makes sense that a student pursuing maybe a law degree or an MBA or something along those lines, you know, they can be fine borrowing more than a student who is, let's say, just, you know, pursuing an associate's degree. Um, and then they can also start thinking about what job they plan to have or hope to have <laughs> when they graduate and, and know kind of what that starting salary is for that job. And that's something that they can look up. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has an occupational outlook handbook um, and it's online. can be really helpful. So, um, like, if a student wants to be, let's say, a, a preschool teacher, you know, the, the median salary for in 2016 for a preschool teacher is, you know, was less than $29,000. So, you know, that, their borrowing figure is going to be really different from a student who, you know, let's say is going to be a chemical engineer with a median salary of over 98000 so very, two very different, you know, salaries for careers. And then also they're going to want to think about where they're going to live when they graduate. You know, it costs a whole lot less to live in, like, Memphis than it does in San Francisco. So, you know, when they ask themselves all of those questions, they might be able to kind of put together a, an idea of, of what amount is prudent for them to borrow and what, you know, what kind of the, the goal is to keep be, uh, below that. Yeah, actually, it's funny you talk about where they live, too, because I've I also had a conversation with a father and son and the son really wanted to be in Boston, but he was going to have to take out a lot more loans to go there than to say UMass Amherst. And I said, well, Mm -hmm. you also need to think about, you know, you can move to Boston after you graduate, but if you graduate with too many loans, you're going to move back in with your parents. So think about it in those concrete terms. After you, is it worse to go to a cheaper college now and be able to move to Boston after you graduate? Or is it going to be, or do you want to move back in with your parents actually after those four years? And his father just started laughing. Um, But I think that was kind of what I needed to say to get through to the young man. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's it's something certainly you need to consider. Mm -hmm. And so what about parents? Um, what, what kinds of questions do they need to ask themselves? Um, well, they'll need to take a look at, uh, you know, how many kids are they going to borrow? Now, number one, do they plan to borrow um, in their own name on, like, a federal parent plus loan or something along those lines? Um, and how many kids do they need to borrow for? Like, you know, if you have a parent with three kids and the first, you know, kid is, is a freshman in college and they're like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to borrow $20,000 to send him to college. Okay, well, now multiply that times, you know, four years. Now you're eighty grand in debt. Now multiply that times three kids. Now you're almost a quarter of a million dollars in debt, so think about that. And then um, also they need to ask themselves about um, their current financial position. Are they even capable of adding a monthly loan payment to their budget right now? And, and if so, you know, how much could they afford in a monthly loan payment? And also, how long can they afford it? I mean, if you have a, a, you know, a, a parent who is planning to retire in four years, and then, then they won't be able to afford that you know, additional loan payment for very long. Um, and also, if they borrow and they're uh, you know, paying on the loan payments, is that going to you know, put off retirement, or is it going to prevent them from from saving for retirement so because you don't want to do that um what they really need to do is take a look at their overall financial picture and you know if they if they are going to borrow for for their 
uh, child's educational expenses, um, you know, they need to know, okay, how, how is that going to affect my debt-to-income ratio? Is that going to go all out of whack if I borrow 80 grand over the next four years to send them to college? Um, you know, will it cause my credit score to drop? If my credit score drops, how is that going to impact uh, me in the future, you know, if I need, if I need credit for something? So um, it's, it's a different set of questions that parents need to ask, but still really important ones. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go back to the student. Now, once the student has answered all of these questions for themselves, then what? How do they decide the amount that they don't, that they shouldn't be going over? Okay. Well, there's, there's a few basic rules of thumb for this. Um, so the, the first one is based on the student's annual starting salary. And, and the rule of thumb for this one says that the student loan payment should be no more than 8% of the gross monthly income based on your entry-level salary. So, you know, to figure that out, figure that out um, they could take their uh, entry-level starting salary, divide that by 12 to get your gross monthly income, and then multiply that times 8%. So, you know, let's say your expected starting salary is 40 grand per year. Your grossly month income would be 33.33 per month, and then 8% of that would be $267. And so you're like, okay, I, based on this information, I should be able to afford $267. Based on that payment, how much can I afford to borrow? And and there are lots of student loan calculators out there. I use bank rates, but um, if you put that information in, you'll you'll see that you know with a 10-year standard repayment at four and a half percent interest you can afford to borrow somewhere in the neighborhood of a little less than $26,000. So that's one way that you can do it. Of course, you know, if you changed your repayment plan um, or have a different interest rate, then that amount is going to change too. So that's the first rule of thumb. The, the second rule of thumb is even more complex. <laughs> so it's based on, you know, the student's discretionary income. And that is the difference between the student's salary and 100%, 150% of the poverty guideline. So, you know, if you want your student loan payment to be no more than 20% of your discretionary income, you're going to have to, you know, say, okay, well, my starting salary is $40,000 um, based on the, you know, all the, the uh, discretionary income and po- poverty guidelines, then my payment can be no more than, you know, 365 dollars per month and I'd need to borrow no more than a little over 35,000 to get that. But mm-hmm. I know those are kind of complex, you know, ways to calculate it. Yeah, is there an easier way? I mean, I can you know, I'm a grown adult and listening to this I was like, "Whoa, okay." Um right. so going to be challenging for <laughs> yep. a 17-year-old. Um so is there any other rule that that might be easier to figure out? Absolutely, and I saved this one for last because I wanted your eyes to glaze over a little bit and be like, oh my God, how am I going to figure this out? So here's the easy way. Figure out what your annual expecting starting salary is going to be and don't borrow any more than that amount. (laughs) Much easier. (laughs) So, you know, you could go again to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Handbook um, and then, you know, that gives both the the mean, uh, you know, the the mean salary for your uh, chosen job and then it also gives the lowest 10% and the highest 10%. For a starting salary, I would say use the lowest 10%. So, you know, I'll go back to the, the uh, student who wants to be the, the preschool teacher. Um, their lowest 10% earned just over $19,000. So if, that, if that's what you want to be, then don't borrow any more than $19,000. If you're, you know, a chemical engineer, 
um, you know, the mean salary is up around $98,000, but the lowest 10% is about $61,000, so don't borrow any more than that. Um, and of course, you know, depending on where you live, if you wanted to just do your own research to say, okay, I'm planning on being this profession, do some research uh, of the professions, uh, the, the people who hold that job in your area, see what they make, and then, you know, base your, your loan decisions on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That is much, much easier. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just want to give another shout out for people. Um, you can get these statistics again at the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Handbook. It's online. You can do a search and get there directly, or you can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. But the Occupational Outlook Handbook is great. Very helpful information. It is. Yeah. It really All right. is. Great information. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what about parents? How should they be calculating this? Ah, it's so much harder for parents um, because, you know, they're, they're, you know, you're not going to be looking at starting salaries because they are, you know, well into their careers or maybe toward the end of their career, you know, at that point. So um, they just need to ask themselves the, the questions, you know, that, that I talked about above and then determine what is best for them, you know, based for their, their whole financial picture, not just, you know, don't, don't bury your head in the sand and say, this is what I need to do to get my kids through school. Before you borrow, know how it's going to affect your entire financial picture and, and make educated decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, Tara, that is really helpful and such an important topic to talk about. So thanks so much for that. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be speaking with Kara Courtois about what to do if a college has offered you a place on the wait list. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity. 
Host Opal Singleton and her guests show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we're now discussing being on the wait list with Kara Courtois. Welcome, Kara. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being on the show. And so, you know, you're a veteran admission counselor. Um, you're also a veteran with College Coach, or you've been working with us for a while. So you've been through a lot of waitlist cycles. So if a student has you know, their hopes haven't been completely dashed, they haven't been denied, but a college said, we might have room for you later, we don't know, which means they've been put on the wait list. Uh, What do you advise for them to do as their next steps? Yeah, I think um, most importantly is really to identify how much you realistically want that school. I think that, you know, say a student got three or four offers for a waitlist, which will happen, you know, is really try to be honest about that. Um, Number one, from a financial perspective. So, you know, accepting the fact, uh, and I don't know this is full knowledge, but at many schools you want to clarify, and it might be in that letter, but you might need to dig a little deeper by corresponding with the admissions office to find out, do they offer any sort of financial assistance to those on the waitlist? Because, if the answer is no, you might have an answer of whether you need to even do anything about that wait list. It might have closed the door for you um, because that is a pretty common scenario, especially at some of the need-based institutions. But if the good news is that you can viably stay on the wait list and say there's one school that pops up that you really want to be you know, considered for, then you know, making sure to reply by the due date, but if not before, would be great. Whatever the school has said at the, the, the due date, if it's just a quick you know, online reply, great. But following up with a letter to the admissions office restating, not a long letter, but restating the reasons why, um, it's a top choice and maybe any new information since they've applied would be one place that I would start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can tell you that um, at the schools that I looked at, we really did look more closely at the students who had gone beyond the minimum when they came off yeah. the wait list. You know, they not they followed up. Um, that being said, you can go too far with this. So you've mentioned a letter that's going to yeah. work for that's not going to offend. I will say this. I don't think that's going to backfire any place. And that's going to yeah. be helpful at probably most schools. But what are some things that you maybe shouldn't do that we all hear about in like news reports or crazy things <laughs> like that? What are some things you should not do? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that you question, <laughs> you know, if a student hesitates, 
then don't do it. And that goes in certainly, um, you know, we all experienced in admissions students who were stalkers, you know, who thought maybe if I email the admissions counselor every day that they'll really understand how much I want the school. And, of course, that's the opposite of what we would ever encourage a student to do in any situation in life, but especially in this situation where an admissions counselor is going to get frustrated by that. Um, They've got plenty of work to do, and and they're focused in on their current class. Um, So you want to approach it in a healthy manner um, and, you know, not go overboard. You know, some students will dress up in all the paraphernalia for that school and the students who would come to campus, even though they hadn't been admitted, they'd come and try to go to an admitted student open house or try to speak, you know, and plead their case in person. It's not helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard space to be on a wait list sometimes, but you want to approach it, you know, in a healthy, um, manner. And, you know, if anything, in addition to a letter, then, you know, you might want to think about, could your guidance counselor advocate for you? Maybe that's, you know, one way to approach the process as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not all guidance counselors will do this, but um, Correct. if your guidance counselor is willing to, if you can sit down with them, talk over the schools on the wait list, and maybe even if you have a top, top choice, that your guidance counselor can communicate that to their to the school that is your top choice. It's obviously dishonest to say this to all the schools. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if there's honestly one that's your top choice, yeah, follow those appropriate mechanisms. Um, and the guidance counselor is one. I mean, the example, I'm just going to give you examples of students who, like, you know, would come and just camp out for hours. Yeah, like you said, in the admission <laughs> office and to the point where I would just try and avoid them. Because I didn't, yeah. you know, they, they'd gotten their answer. There was this one mother um, of a son. Her son had been waitlisted, and she was calling me pretty much every day. And I actually said to her, you know, it would be better if I got a letter from your son restated. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I and she said, well, he's very busy. And I was like, that doesn't matter, um, you know, if he wants to come here. I am telling you that a letter would be helpful. And Uh it doesn't have to be a long one. And I never got a letter from him. And she continued to call until I just stopped taking calls from her altogether. So um, so just, you know, just trying to push your way in really doesn't work. But the kind of gentle letter saying, I still love your school. Uh Thanks for giving me another chance to be thought about. Like, that's where you can maybe do something. Ingratiating yourself to the admissions department. Absolutely. Exactly. You may feel like you're mad at them, but you have to actually thank them for the opportunity to be looked at one more time um, yeah. instead. Yeah. 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 I reminded a few waitlisted students who, you know, did show up at certain events like spring college fairs that I might have been going to speak with juniors and the senior who got waitlisted showed up, you know, and in talking with them would point out, we're still looking for ways, you know, obviously we loved your application and there's just not enough seats, but we're still looking for ways that you add to the campus. So if you're badgering anybody in the college, you know, be it admissions or, you know, a professor that you might have known or current students you want to plead your case, we're going to see that as a sign of the type of student you'll be when you're on campus or the type of parent you'll be who's, you know, calling, you know, incessantly. And that is going to close the door more quickly than almost anything because Mm -hmm. they're not going to want to have you on campus for four years with that kind Mm -hmm. of mentality. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what about, I mean, I know there was a, I think we discussed in our meeting before this call, um, University of Michigan, I believe they sent out a letter explicitly saying, don't send us anything else other than updated grades. Um, Mm -hmm. You you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, for a school that says that, especially when it's a larger school, because they tend to be the ones that say it, you know, take them on face value, because they clearly don't have the time to review anything additional than what they've already got from you. And so other than new grades, um, there's not much else you can do, you know, really in the grand scheme of things. So I would usually encourage a student, take that at face value, follow the directions very carefully for what they've asked. If they want an online reply, then send an online, you know, reply. Um, And then, you know, you need to move on with your life. And I think, you know, though this segment's not really about this, I I think it's very important to say that for any student who's waitlisted, it's super important to accept some place that you've been admitted to and deposit by May 1st so that you, you know, while you're, potentially waiting on the wait list for the other school, you're not going to hear from them until sometimes June, July, sometimes even August. So, you know, it's just super important if you're considering staying on the wait list and being viable for that, um, you know, whatever that may mean, not just to sit back and, and hope for the best and not deposit at another institution. Super important to deposit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because actually, you'll we'll be talking about this more in the next segment, but most students are not offered a place off the wait list. So you do have to assume that it's not going to happen. Um, right. And yeah, and I just want to recap quickly. I mean, I think the main thing is to read the letter, the waitlist letter carefully. I'm always surprised by how many students don't really read it. They just see you've been waitlisted and stop reading. Mm-hmm. So read yeah. the letter carefully, see what they're willing to accept and what they're not. If they don't explicitly forbid Um, a letter, then definitely send that letter in. But don't send in anything that they're actually saying, we don't want this from you. Don't do it. Right. Right. So, although the good news is that if you're not sure, a brief letter saying, I still want to go. Here's some updates about great things that I've done. This is why I still love your school. That's at least not going to offend anyone. The worst case scenario is it's just going to be thrown away. Um, yeah. But showing up in someone's office, badgering, yeah. that could actually bother someone. So. Not so much. Yeah. Not yeah. so much yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And there is a great blog post on the College Coach you know, website about seven things you should do if you're on the wait list. So um, just to follow up on this, it might be helpful to read that. Oh, excellent. Yeah, everybody go to our blog post at getintocollege.com forward, splay, for, uh, sorry, forward slash blog, I believe. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. Thanks, Kara. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. All right. So now we're going to take a short break. But when we return, we'll be speaking with Elise Krantz about NACAC's State of Affairs report. So stick around. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Elise Krantz and I will now be discussing the NACAC report on the state of college admissions in the United States. Welcome, Elise. Hi, Sally. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, always a pleasure. All right. So let's start with what this report is. Like, what is the NACAC state of admissions report? You know, who does it? You know, what, what, uh, what kind of information are they looking for? That sort of thing. Okay, so I know it probably doesn't sound that exciting to your listeners, like who cares about a state of college <laughs> admission report, um, but really there are some amazing facts in this. This is published, this is an annual report that is published every year by the National Association for College Admission Counseling, um, and so this is a group that represents admissions officers across the country, um, and they compile amazing data, everything from the number of applications that students are submitting to what's uh, typical for an early decision acceptance rate to what's important from for international students when they're applying. I mean, it's, it's a huge range of data. And so they produce a summary and a really nice little flashy brochure. So for those of us who love numbers in when it comes to college admissions, we can learn about trends and what's happening and what might have changed from recent years so that we can really get a sense for, for students who will be applying in this next round coming up uh, for 2018-2019, what are some factors they might want to keep in mind uh, given the state of college admissions. Right, right, how things might be changing. Um, this can be helpful for parents, too. I mean, it's kind of interesting 
how little parents, some parents are aware of how much things have changed. So, um, so let's start by talking about how many applications colleges are receiving or, or their volume of applications. Um, like sure. with the first, like with the first bullet point that you provided me with your excellent notes, um, you note that the number of first year applications is continuing to increase. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Right. So this has been a trend that we've been seeing for the past several years. It looks like pretty much as early as they were doing this survey back in 1995, it looks like, um, numbers understandably are going up. So students who are, they look at the number of applications that each individual student submits. Um, and so they find that students who are submitting more than seven applications have gone up, students who are applying uh, with more than three applications has gone up. It's just across the board that any first-year student really from year to year, those numbers keep increasing, the number of applications that they are sending out there. Mm -hmm. So the big thing is not that there's more students applying to college, but that students are applying to more colleges. That's what accounts for the increase. Exactly, and a lot of that is because every year as colleges seem to be getting more and more competitive, which we can talk about too because there's a number about that and the overall competitiveness of colleges across the country, students I think are just understandably concerned that they won't have any place to call home. And so they're looking to not just apply to one or two colleges the way their parents may have done years and years ago, um, but they're applying to 10, 15, sometimes even more. So those those multiple applications are are certainly on the rise. Right, right. And then unfortunately, um, admissions becomes less predictable, so it sort of becomes an arms race. So um, Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was interesting, too, I thought, related to this, the number of applications, um, as we said, from first-year students this year. Uh, excuse me, this, this data is from, I should say this, the data is from fall 2015 to fall 2016, this is the most recent data that, that we're working with. Um, and so the number of first-year application freshmen has gone up 7% from the year previous year to that year. Um, transfer applications only have gone up a little bit, but what's interesting is I thought it was international applications. For years, this number has been surging. Um, from fall 2014 to 15, there, were 20, there was an increase in 23% from international applications, but this past year cycle, it was only 13%. So it's still growing, but it's not growing at the same intense rate that it was growing in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing we don't, I mean, that is a really interesting factoid, and it might be a relief mm-hmm. to some, I guess, domestic students. It's a little bit less competition from overseas. Sure. But, um, mm-hmm. um, do we know why that is, or would that just be pure conjecture? Yeah, they don't dig into that, into this report. I mean, from other news articles I've been seeing, I think just given the state of the the politics going on in the U.S. right now, I think a lot of students were either finding it difficult to obtain visas or were were concerned about uh, how they would be treated or welcomed once they got here. So I think that has come in. To play, although I mean, this again, since the data is from a couple years ago, like we can't say that it's necessarily a, as a result of what's been happening in the past couple of years uh, on the polit- political side. But um, that it's it, so it's a little bit of a conjecture, but it's it's possibly related to something you know the comfort level perhaps of the international students in seeking education here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess the summary of all this is that it's still, it's a very busy time in admission offices trying to read all those applications that are being submitted. 
Exactly. If students are submitting, you know, seven or plus applications, which is common for about a third of all students out there, you can imagine the numbers of applications total that each admissions officer has to read. So according to the report, and these numbers are amazing, so for a single admissions officer who works at a public university, they are reading on average about 1,400 applications in, the, in each annual cycle. Um, the numbers are understandably less at a private school. Private schools tend to be smaller than the, their public institutions, um, but it's about 500 applications per admissions officer. So you can imagine how challenging it can be to stand out in a pool when you're facing all of that competition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and when the school is more selective, the number goes up too. Like I, I dug into the report and the numbers that you provided me, and it says when when an institution accepts fewer than 50% of applicants, the um, admission counselor tends to read around 2,000. And so that's just 50,000, that's just, um, sorry, fewer than 50%. I mean, I know that when I was at University of Chicago, I read more than that. Um, you know, one year. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty crazy. So yeah, it is right. difficult I mean, to make right. that there's, positive. There's a wide range of colleges that respond to the survey. It's about 40% or so of all of the U.S. colleges um, that reported the, their statistics. So right, there are schools that are very selective that are accepting far less than 50%, and then there's schools that are accepting more than 85%. And so, yeah, that 500 number is, is certainly in the average range, but you're right, it's about 2,000 for the more selective colleges, 2,000 files per admissions officer. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot. It is a lot. Um, and I think that's very relevant. I mean, I always try and, when students are writing essays, I always try and remind them who their audience is. It's not their English te- teacher who's going to take you know, half an hour to read every essay. It's an admission counselor who's got two minutes, probably. So right, you don't want right. to make things overly complicated at all. Um, all right. So let's move on to acceptance and yield rates. Um, I mean, I think if you read the media about it, and this even goes for top publications like the New York Times, you know, you'd be under the impression that college is getting harder and harder to get into, and certainly some institutions are, but what does this report show? I was so happy to see the numbers making a little bit of a of a shift. Um, so a few years ago, back in fall 2013, the overall national acceptance rate for first-time freshmen for, for colleges who completed this NACAC survey was around 65% or so. Um, and so when the most recent data was pulled from fall 2015, so two years after that, it's up to 66%. And that, that may not seem like a lot, but the fact that the numbers are not dropping, I think is great, because they were dropping for a while. The, the acceptance rate had been going down. So the fact that two years ago, we were at 64.7%, about 65%, and now we're up to 66%. Um, there are colleges out there that are welcoming students that are looking, even at this state on March, uh, in, you know, in late March, that they're looking for more applications and students to be applying, that there are colleges out there um, who are not in that ultra-selective pool. So uh, overall, yeah, I think it's a nice, healthy acceptance rate for, for colleges in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There really is a college for every high school graduate. If you can graduate, mm-hmm. you can find a college that will take you. Um, what about for transfers? Um, it was interesting. The acceptance rates for transfers, they do 
It's, which I was surprised a bit by the results from the survey because when I was reading transfer applications at Barnard, um, my experiences there were that the acceptance rate was actually, at the time, this was several years ago, the transfer acceptance rate was actually a little bit higher for transfers than it was for first-year students, um, meaning it was slightly easier, I guess, for a transfer to get in than for a first-year. But according to the data from the state of admissions report, the transfer acceptance rates are actually a little bit lower than that for first-year students. Um, but hardest of all, which I thought was interesting, are acceptance rates for international students. Um, so first-year students seem to, who are domestic, find generally higher acceptance rates than those for internationals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's kind of, that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would like to, I'd like to guess about why this is, but I'm not really sure, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't, because honestly, at a lot of the institutions, other than the most selective institutions, in many cases, it was actually a little easier for a transfer to get in than for a mm-hmm. first-year student. So, hmm. All right. Well, very good to know. Um, All right. So let's talk about early decision and early action. Um, You know, what are the trends? Let's start with early decision. What are the trends with uh, with that? Sure. So early decision, we have been seeing, again, for a very long time, the trend that more and more students are applying early decision, more colleges are choosing to offer it. And the big, I think the biggest piece of this is that colleges who have early decision, their acceptance rate for early decision applicants is higher compared to that of all of their applicants. So the numbers from this report say that the overall acceptance rate for early decision applicants, so nationally, was around 60%, whereas overall acceptance rates were for early decision schools was at 48%. So clearly, regardless of what any college tells you, there is clearly an advantage to strategically to applying early decision. Your chances, all things being equal, all your chances of getting in early decision will be stronger. And a lot of that comes down to yield. It's because colleges know that when they're admitting that early decision applicant, that student is pretty much bound to go unless there's some major extenuating circumstance or compelling financial reason that prohibits them from attending. They're going to come. And so colleges sometimes will use up some of their spaces on students that they know they can lock them in, and then they'll be a little bit more choosy, a little more selective with the rest of the, the students in that application pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of and one of the impacts of this, I think, has been that students have to really front load their admission process. Sometimes when I talk to, um, you know, to, to sort of parents, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, it's August of the senior year. And they're like, well, he doesn't know which colleges yet, but we're going to take him to visit some schools soon. And I'm like, you have to do it now, you know. So mm-hmm. obviously, that's more so the case with the more selective schools, which are the ones that tend to have early decision. But if your child is a strong student, you really need to start the process in the spring. Um, because in general, you know, you might end up needing to use early decision as a strategy, because it, it really can be a good one. I do want to um, emphasize though something that you mentioned, which is all other things being equal. So if you're a B student, right. you're not getting into Dartmouth just because you applied ED. It's If you're an A student, if you're the kind of student Dartmouth wants, applying early decision is going to up your odds of getting in. 
Um, that's the difference. But yeah, if you're not competitive in the pool, early decision will do nothing for you. And I, I do just have to stress that because I sort of hate it when students kind of waste an early decision on a school that they could never get into when they've got a second choice that they really, really like, um, mm-hmm. where it could maybe, you know, give them some leverage. So, um, well, what about early action? What are some of the trends there? So this is so fascinating because here at College Coach, we have all kind of come to the agreement that early action will not help your chances and that it's the way early decision can. The acceptance rates usually are pretty similar to that of regular decision pools. Um, but according to the NACAC data, that's not quite the case. So nationally speaking, for all colleges that offer early action, the early action acceptance rate was actually a tad higher than that of the overall acceptance rate. So we're talking about 71% for all early action uh, applicants as an acceptance rate compared to 65% for the overall acceptance rate. So interesting, right? It's not it's not a huge of a jump as it is for early decision, regular versus early, but it does seem to be that for some schools at least that applying early action will improve your chances. Mm-hmm. I think that we do need to kind of balance that out with the fact that um, traditionally the early pool is the stronger pool at an early action school. I mean, when I worked at University of Chicago, we did admit a higher percentage early, but it was actually a significantly stronger pool. Um, it was, you know, it was pretty interesting. So that right, being and said, that, that makes sense, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that being said, I actually always recommend that students apply early action unless there's some very good reason not to. You know, really, like, again, figure out your list of schools by August because you need to be hitting those deadlines um, some as early as October 15th for places like mm-hmm. UNC Chapel Hill or Georgia Tech or University of Georgia, for example. Exactly. Um, yeah. And the number of colleges, too that offer early action, that has been increasing as well, which is interesting. Um, so it is becoming a more popular option. Schools are adding it when they haven't had it in the past. And so it's something for students definitely to be on the lookout for to see uh, if it's mm-hmm. an option at the schools they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look up, you know, go to the websites, check out the deadlines. And, you know, be aware that for some schools also, by the way, there's scholarship considerations too like even if it doesn't matter I talked to one mother down in Virginia whose son was you know his top choice was 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 truly a safety for him he had above average um, you know grades and test scores I would have been very surprised if he didn't get in but he sort of put off applying by the November 1 or I think it might have been December deadline that would have guaranteed him a scholarship from this particular school and his mother was devastated and I was like you know you can call the admission office but I'm kind of betting that they're going to say he missed the deadline it's too late and so you know he was out 15000 a year potentially if he'd gotten that scholarship so so definitely apply early action if you if you can. You know, um, that's the sort of basic message there. Mm-hmm. All right. Absolutely. So some stu- yeah. So some students will be hearing soon if they haven't already that they've been waitlisted by a college. So they're in that gray zone. They haven't been admitted. They haven't been denied. Um, what are you seeing with the trends for waitlists? So waitlists are becoming more and more common and it's it's hard and you feel for these students of course when we're working with them on the admissions side though i mean if you place yourself in the shoes of an admissions dean and you're trying to enroll the right number of students and you're getting 
thousands of more applications than you used to, and not everyone who's being admitted is coming because they've applied to dozens of other colleges. It's getting so much harder to figure out who exactly is coming, what size will your freshman class be, you don't want to over-enroll, you can't under-enroll. It's tricky. So more and more colleges are turning to wait lists. So according to the NACAC report, about 40% of colleges report using a wait list. And the numbers in terms of who gets off the wait list are not so great. Nationally speaking, for schools uh, that offer wait lists, the, their average acceptance rate off of the wait list is about 23%, but that drops when you were talking understandably about the more selective schools. So for schools that accept fewer than half of all their applicants, only 14% of those waitlisted students will actually gain admission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why in the last segment, Karen and I were talking about wait lists. And uh, yeah, go ahead and write the letter, say you're interested, but then you really need to deposit someplace else because the odds are that you're not going to get in. Um, so, all right. So let's look at factors and admission decisions. I think this is going to be really interesting for people. Were there any changes in factors for admission decisions? Like what, what are the factors that tend to be most important for most colleges and universities? <laughs> So when colleges are looking at an application, there's a range of factors they're considering. And for the past, uh, probably ever since the survey was conducted, (laughs) uh, for the past several years, grades are by far the most important factor. Um, So it's interesting because in previous years, there's been a little bit of a shift this year in terms of the ordering of of some of these factors, but generally speaking, uh, colleges would give the most importance, according to the survey, and we know this to be true, having worked in admissions, the grades that you are earning, not just in all of your courses, but especially in those college prep courses, are incredibly important as is the overall strength of your curriculum. So to make sure that where appropriately you're challenging yourself with those honors or AP or IB classes. Um, Now, we always talk about beyond score, excuse me, beyond the grades, once you have that, you know, what else is important? And testing has, it always seems like testing is in the news. There's always, it seems like every week or so, there's a school that's either dropping admissions testing requirements or they're dropping subject tests or the essay portion, whatever it may be. But it's interesting that testing has, is a little bit on the decline in terms of colleges reporting how important it is, the admissions test scores. Um, so that has been dropping a little bit, as has uh, the interview has been sort of becoming less and less important, um, as are subject tests. So sort of those together. And class rank, that was another one, because a lot of high schools aren't even ranking students anymore. So understandably, that's becoming less of an important factor. And then sort of in that medium important factor are things like essays and letters of recommendation. Now, again, this is nationally speaking, but the survey did dig a little deeper to say that schools that are private and or more selective do tend to place more of an emphasis on those middle factors, the essays and the recommendations, whereas schools that are larger and often public schools place more of an emphasis on testing. Mm -hmm. That was interesting, too. Yeah. Did we discuss demonstrated interest yet? The, the, how important that no, is? No, we have not. Okay, let's talk about that because I think that is something that surprises a lot of people because back in the olden days, demonstrated interest wasn't even a thing. So a lot of parents are taken aback by this. So has there been any changes there? 
Right. So in the past few years, it seems like demonstrated interest seems to have been this really hot new factor in admissions, where it's becoming more and more important that college that students show colleges either by way of visiting the campus, taking a tour, signing up uh, when the rep comes to visit your high school, going to college fair. I mean, there's a lot of ways to demonstrate interest that you do some of that. And so according to the data, the peak of the uh, of how important demonstrated interest was, um, they say it was back in 2010, which I find a little surprising because I feel like it's been even on a roll since 2010 because according to the data from this year, again, this is only 44% of colleges across the country, but in terms of only 14% of colleges feel that demonstrated interest is considerably important compared to 23% back in 2010. So it actually seems to be dropping a little bit, um, which I find interesting, but it's still a factor. It's still more important than class rank. It's still more important than an interview or your subject test scores. Um, certainly not as important as an essay, but it's, it is a factor that many colleges do take into account. Mm -hmm. And just institutionally, I like to let people know that it's probably going to be especially the case at private schools and not so much the case at public schools in general. Um, Mm -hmm. So, all right. So we only really have one minute left. So maybe um, like what's a what's a difference for international students just quickly? Um, well, I thought it was so interesting that in, for international students, the number one factor that colleges are looking for is, understandably, it's proficiency in English. Um, that's Obviously, they're not going to be able to construct a solid essay. They're not going to be able to succeed academically. Uh, but was so interesting in this, in this data was it said for international students, after English profici- proficiency, the most important factor for the majority of colleges across the country was their ability to pay. So for international students, finances can have a major influence on whether or not you are admitted. So 21% of colleges said that an international student's ability to pay was considerably important. And when you compare that to a domestic first-year student, it's only 2% of colleges say it's considerably important. So that's a, that's a big factor difference there. Absolutely. All right, listen, um, we have to close it up now, Elisa. Thanks so much. This was great information. Sure. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Katera and Kara for being my guests today. I want to tell you about our show next week. Beth Heaton will return as the host, and she'll be doing two insider segments, one on the Goucher College Admission Office and one on the Babson College Financial Aid Office. Um, And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows on topics as varied as the March 15th show on Campus Visit Pitfalls, and preparing to hear from your regular decision colleges. We also did a college spotlight on Ole Miss in that show. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 